I thank God for all who have led us in worship this morning, and I thank God for all of you who have gathered with the church on this sunny summer day. We continue a sermon series called Give Me Jesus. We're looking at various passages in the four Gospels of the New Testament that reveal to us important things, uh, wonderful things, and maybe for some of us at times new things about Jesus Christ. Today I want to draw your attention to John chapter 8. I will read verses 2 through 11 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is Gracious Gavel. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amid the hustle and bustle of the busy temple courts, Jesus was teaching a large group of people when suddenly some religious leaders barged in, bringing a sinner before him. The woman had been caught in adultery, a capital offense according to Old Testament law. Leviticus 20 says, The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22 adds that if a woman who is engaged to one man sleeps with another man, both offenders shall be stoned to death. With these passages in mind, the accusers put the woman in the middle of the crowd so they could put Jesus on the spot. The law says we are to stone 
such women. Jesus, what do you say? The whole production was a trap. They were trying to get Jesus to say something unlawful so that they could accuse him. If he were to endorse the law and support the death penalty, he would compromise his compassion. But if he were to show the woman compassion, he would compromise the law. The accusers had all the evidence they needed against this woman. Old Testament law required two or more witnesses, and these men said they had caught her in the act. The circumstances were a bit curious, however. Did they just happen upon two people committing adultery? Or had they been surveilling possible offenders and staking out somebody's house? I imagine they spied on this woman until they got the evidence they needed so they could use her to put Jesus in a jam. They had an airtight case against the woman. Her crime merited the death penalty according to the law, and they were threatening to administer it. There she stood, publicly humiliated, her sins broadcast from the rooftop. Who knows what this poor woman was thinking? Was she embarrassed? Was she repentant? Was she frightened? Did she fear that Jesus would stick to the letter of the law and recommend death by stoning as her punishment? But there was another participant in this transgression notice that the accusers had not apprehended the man who was also guilty of adultery where was he how come they didn't drag him in front of Jesus and all these people at the temple according to the law he was supposed to be executed too maybe he was too fast for them and got away or maybe they weren't as concerned with him. Many societies throughout history, including ours, have been harder on women than men when it comes to sensual improprieties. It's unjust, but it's a fact. So I guess we shouldn't be too surprised that Jesus was pressed for his judgment on her indiscretion. And what did Jesus do in this pivotal moment? He began writing on the ground with his finger. How peculiar. Some interpreters think he was following a Roman legal custom in which the judge would write out the sentence before pronouncing it. Some interpreters think he was listing the sins of the accusers right there in the dirt. Some think he was enacting Jeremiah 17, 13. Those who turn away from you shall be written on the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord. Some think he was writing Exodus 23, 1. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Others think he was just buying some time to come up with a response. There was a Semitic custom of doodling when distressed. 
In the final analysis, we don't know why Jesus wrote or what Jesus wrote. It's the only time in the entire Bible that Jesus wrote anything, and we don't know what it was. Still, we can feel the tension in this agonizing scene. The woman stands there with her fate on the line, at least hypothetically, if not literally. The accusers ask if Jesus would uphold the Old Testament law and have the woman stoned to death for her sin. The bystanders wait on a tiptoe to hear how the teacher will respond to this weighty question that has so dramatically interrupted his lecture. Everyone stares at Jesus with bated breath, sensing the precipice of the moment, and Jesus is busy doodling in the dust. There's no jury, mind you. Judge Jesus will suggest her sentence alone. There's no defense attorney to argue the woman's case. and She neither defends herself nor denies her guilt. The verdict is obviously guilty. They're just awaiting the judge's sentence. The law could hardly be clearer. The prosecution's case could hardly be stronger. The death penalty appears to be in order. Yet when Jesus finished writing, he said something remarkable. He said something powerful. He said something that's been quoted ever since. Let anyone among you who is without sin throw the first stone. He's echoing Deuteronomy 17, which says the witnesses of the crime must be the first to stone the offender. But Jesus adds something extra here, a real zinger. Whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. Looks like the qualification for condemning another altogether is sinlessness. Looks like the credential required for condemning someone else outright is a perfectly righteous record of our own. Looks like the lens through which we are to view the shortcomings of others is the recognition of our own unrighteousness. Whoever is without sin, said Jesus, and be the first to cast a stone. I bet the crowd responded with dumbfounded silence. I bet the woman looked at Jesus with inquisitive hope. I bet the accusers looked at one another with bewildered shock as if to say, uh, boys, what do we do now? <laughs> they had put the woman on the spot. They had put Jesus on the spot. But now Jesus had put them on the spot. When I was a little boy, my family spent our summers in the mountains of Brevard, North Carolina, where my father was on the faculty of the Brevard Music Center. My brother Rick and I had the best time going fishing, playing basketball, and running all through the woods. We stayed in a wooden cabin surrounded by a vast 
forest and there was one path right near our cabin where my brother Rick and I loved to play. We took his hatchet and our Swiss army knives and chopped branches off of trees to clear the path really nicely for us. We built a fort up there on the hill right beside the path where we could play. And just in case bad guys ever came, we set some booby traps too. My brother Rick was brilliant at rigging all kinds of traps. I remember he set up a tripwire on the path, and if you tripped over it, it also triggered a stick that was tied to a rope that would come swinging in to hit you in the side. We also dug a big hole right in the middle of the path and covered it with leaves so that if the bad guys were chasing us, they would step into the hole and twist their ankle, and then we could push them down the hill. It was very Swiss Family Robinson. Of course, no bad guys ever came to our fort. No actual adversaries ever showed up to threaten us on our special path. But we would often forget about the hole beneath the leaves and step into it and twist our own ankles. <laughs> We'd forget about the tripwire sometimes and go stumbling down our own path. <laughs> Looking back, our traps worked quite well, just as they had been designed to work, except they got us instead of somebody else. <laughs> Likewise, the accusers in our story carefully set a trap, and they ended up catching themselves. The law says adultery is a sin, so they trapped a woman caught in it and condemned her. However, the problem with condemning others is that we commit sins too. When we condemn people for falling short of God's standards, we are sure to fall into the trap that we ourselves have set. The point is not to undermine moral standards. Adultery is a sin. Nobody in the story questions that. The point is whether to completely condemn someone for one sin when we ourselves are sinners as well. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Do not judge, so you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. The woman's accusers held her to standards that they themselves could not meet. As they realized they could not condemn her, the accusers left one by one. The elders departed first because they were the wisest. They quickly realized that their own sin disqualified them from condemning the woman. They had been reminded that their unrighteousness merited judgment as well. Basically, Jesus had moved the accusers into the defendant's chair. You see, when Jesus is holding the gavel, Everybody is in the defendant's chair. The accusers didn't like that too much. 
They were quick to recognize, judge, and condemn the sins of others, but they did not want to look in the moral mirror. After the last one had vacated the area, all that was left was a sinful woman standing before a sinless judge. And Jesus, the only one qualified to pick up a stone, threw mercy at her instead. Jesus, the only one qualified to pick up a stone, threw pardon at her instead. Jesus, the only one qualified to pick up a stone, threw forgiveness at her instead. Jesus, the only one there qualified to pick up a stone, threw grace at her instead. Jesus, the only one qualified to pick up a stone, threw compassion at her instead. His grace is not without accountability, however. He didn't shrug off her sin as if it was no big deal. He didn't say, it's okay, don't worry about it. Instead, he said, I do not condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. He recognizes her conduct as sinful without condemning her. Oh, how the church could bless the world if we could follow Jesus' delicate balance here to discern what is right and wrong with conviction and to treat people who do right and wrong with compassion. Jesus ultimately bent the rules a bit. He did not punish the woman at all. I guess we could say he sentenced her to time served. Maybe he figured public humiliation was punishment enough. In any case, Jesus shows us a God of second chances. He's more interested in the woman's potential than her punishment. Jesus gives her grace and admonishes her to stop sinning. Jesus offers her mercy and challenges her to live more righteously. Forgiveness from Christ entails living for Christ. Still, some may worry that Jesus' move toward impunity undercuts law and order or devalues moral standards. Judging people with compassion and challenge instead of outright condemnation may sound like irresponsible amnesty that just enables the offender to continue in damaging patterns of behavior. But I've seen it work transformatively. I have seen it work transformatively in real life. Years ago when I was a youth minister, I took several adult leaders and 50 teenagers to Boston, Massachusetts for a week-long mission trip. We had several different mission projects in Boston, in Salem, and Peabody. And one night we took everybody to Quincy Market, a historic shopping district in the city of Boston so people could see the sights, enjoy some fun, and perhaps buy a souvenir or two. It was a wonderful night 
full of laughter and joy and fellowship until I got word that three of our high school boys had just been caught trying to steal cologne from a store. Immediately I was like, what are they thinking? Stealing cologne and on a church mission trip. What are we doing? I rushed over to to where they were and when I got into the store, the security official had just finished talking with them and these three teenagers ran into my arms like two-year-olds, crying profusely, shaking with fear. It's hard to know what to do in such a moment. Do you give them a hug or do you give them a lecture? It seemed right to start with hugs and lecture them later. And that is what I did. That night I called our pastor back in South Carolina to ask him what I should do about this. And he said, well, you can send them home immediately or you can allow them to remain with the team and finish the mission trip. It's up to you. And as I prayerfully considered what to do about this, the story of the woman caught in adultery came to mind. Like this woman, these guys were caught in the act of committing a sin. Like this woman, they were publicly humiliated for it. These guys were also repentant. They apologized over and over again. So I decided to base my decision on Jesus' response to the woman. I extended forgiveness to them and allowed them to stay on the team for the remainder of the mission trip. But I, along with our whole mission team, challenged them to go and sin no more. They were very grateful for the grace and they were absolutely terrific the rest of the trip. I mean, really great. When we got back home, in fact, I noticed that they started to do better in general over the next couple of three months. And the next summer, on a similar youth mission trip to Georgia, two of these three guys were voted most valuable mission team members. Of all the teenagers on the whole trip, these two guys were identified as exhibiting the most Christ-like character. I could hardly have been more proud of them. This case shows that grace can lead to more righteous living, as Jesus intends for it to do, rather than devolving into license for further unrighteousness. Grace, after all, is crucial for all of us. Or when we look in the moral and spiritual mirror, we can see that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And when judgment day comes, all that will be left will be a sinful us standing before a sinless judge. There will be no doubt about our trespasses, our offenses in thought, word, and deed, 
And yet, as Romans 8 assures us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judge who is serious about right and wrong holds in his hand a gracious gavel. Indeed, his grace is greater than our sin. His mercy is greater than our mess-ups. His favor is greater than our faults. His compassion is greater than our crimes. His pardon is greater than our transgressions. His kindness is greater than our unrighteousness. His goodness is greater than our wrongdoing. His benevolence is greater than our crookedness. And His tremendous love is greater than all of our shortcomings. So when we stand before Christ on the last day, I imagine He will look into our eyes with profound compassion and He will say, is there no one to condemn you? (laughs) Neither do I condemn you. Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Amen.